Welcome. You're listening to the Diving In podcast, brought to you by Virginia Seymour and Louise Jones. This podcast is part of a lifelong conversation between friends about the books we're reading and the issues they make us think about. That also goes for the movies and television we're watching and the podcasts we're currently hooked on. We might even talk about what's in the news and anything else we're diving into this week. Diving in. Hi, Ginny. Hi, Lou. Hello, everyone, and welcome. Today, we are thrilled to be recording a special episode of the Diving In podcast to be included as part of the Fanza Fringe. Fanza is the Foundation for Australian and New Zealand Arts. It's a charitable arts organisation based in London, and it promotes and supports Australian and New Zealand writers, musicians and artists. And it does an incredible job showcasing these creatives to audience in the UK. And this year and next are particularly exciting. The British Council and the Australian High Commission in London have created a Season of Culture, which is a bilateral program to celebrate the cultural connections between our two countries. It sounds great, doesn't it? It does, really. And particularly with lockdown, it's such a special thing for them to have have put together, particularly because artists are struggling because they can't perform. So true. There's a full program of arts events in the UK and in Australia. There's music, performance, theatre, and I think it's scheduled to be released on the 25th of August. But don't worry about the date because you should check the Fanza website and Instagram and Twitter and, and you will get the latest updates and details of the program. And to coincide with the season of culture, Fanza has released its own fringe program of events in London, which here at the Diving In podcast, we are excited to be part of. Yes, we really are. So we thought we should perhaps let uh, Fanza members know a little bit about us. I thought I'd just give you a little bit of a summary. Louise and I met at law school here in Perth in Western Australia many years ago, and we've been best friends ever since. And although we have both practised as lawyers for many years. Neither of us is currently practising law. We're both very keen readers and we also love to discuss issues of the day (laughs) and try and make sense of this crazy world that we live in. And I always love Lou's take on things Uh, and we also often end up in helpless laughter. (laughs) Often? Always. (laughs) It's sort of guaranteed, really. Mm -hmm. So in 2019, Louise and I decided to start a bookish podcast just for fun. We had absolutely no clue Mm -hmm. how to go about it, but we just gradually figured out each step, step by step, Mm -hmm. and we did it. So we're, we're quite proud of ourselves for accomplishing that. <laughs> we are. And the podcast world is quite supportive. So we, yes. we, we had quite a lot of support from other podcasters, yes. didn't we? Yes. Because they all know how hard it is to yes. do that. Yes. So we want the podcast to be a cosy conversation about books and a few other things that we're watching or listening to. But it is mainly books. Books are at the centre of it. And we're slowly building up a wonderful community of listeners from all over the world, many of whom follow our Instagram account, which is at diving underscore in underscore podcast and they leave us messages and feedback and lovely comments. It's, mm. it's really fantastic. So we'd love you to tune in too and listen to our other episodes 
we have a total of 37 now, and plus a number of other shorter duck dive episodes, which are interviews with authors. Each of our episodes has a theme, which is really just a fun way for us to get into a book and, and view a particular book and talk about a couple of books through a different lens, I suppose. So we quite enjoy doing it that way. For our fans or episodes, we have a slightly different format in that we're focusing on Australian and New Zealand authors, which has been great fun. It has. And today we have six books that we're going to chat about. So let's get started. Lou, do you want to talk about your first one? Yes, I'd love to. The first book that I'm going to talk about today is Love Objects by Emily Maguire, which was published this year uh, in Australia by Alan Unwin. This is a sensational book. Love Objects begins as the story of a 45-year-old single woman, Nick, in Sydney. And she works at a cheap department store, which I, I assume is a Kmart or a Big W. And very quickly, uh, we understand that everywhere Nick goes, she observes. She observes objects and items. She notices and ascribes meaning to them. And where possible, she acquires and collects them. She might remove a parking fine from under the windscreen wipers of a car. Oh, She might find a child's toy that's been dropped in a park or even a poster that's been pasted to a telegraph pole. So she might collect all of them and she'll put them in plastic bags, which she has at the ready in her handbag. So you might have guessed Nick is a hoarder. Wow. And from her front door to every nook and cranny of her every room in, of her home, it's jammed full of things. Catalogues, newspapers, em- empty food containers, recipes, medicines, and actually they're only the things that are stacked in her kitchen. Gosh. Filling the fridge. She's got a fridge full of medicine. If you were to squeeze into the living room, you'd find towers of CDs, VHS tapes, crates of toys, trophies, ornaments. But Nick knows exactly where everything is and every item is precious to her. And they are essentially her love objects. So she has a very complicated relationship with her sister, Michelle, but she's a beloved aunt to her niece and a nephew and particularly close with her niece, Lena, who's come to Sydney to attend university. And they meet once a week on a Sunday for lunch and they kind of share their lives. And it's at uni that Lena has an encounter with a young man. Uh, It's a boy she has noticed attending the same lectures as her. Significantly, he's a very wealthy young man and essentially she misjudges him. I'm not going to give away any of the details, but... There is an appalling and contemporary situation that she finds herself in. And quite understandably, Lena becomes completely absorbed by the impact that it's having on her life. And then Nick falls in her cramped house. And consequently, she doesn't turn up to her regular Sunday lunch with Lena. So Lena gets on a bus to go to Nick's house, which is a place she has never been. Oh, even though they're close? Yes. Well, they share their lives every week at lunch. But they go elsewhere. But then they go elsewhere. Oh. So Lena is now confronted with not only caring for her aunt in hospital, but confronted with what she finds in the house. And part of that, of course, is the realisation that perhaps she doesn't know her aunt at all. Yeah. Emily Maguire's writing really comes into its own when she begins to sort of unpack the psychological characteristics of hoarding. And she gave me a great deal to think about. And 
really challenged some preconceptions that I had uh, about about, about the behaviour, yeah. yeah. I've heard her talk in an, inter- in an interview about the connection between hoarding and perceptions of class and the value that we place on objects. For example, if a wealthy person has, you know... A huge collection of... A huge of, collection of jugs, beautiful yeah, jugs yeah. or or not so beautiful jugs. Yeah. We might describe that person as eccentric. Especially if they've housed them in a beautiful bookcase or mm. a shelf or mm. a lovely place. And they may be hideous. Yeah. And yeah. They, they, you know, they may have... But there's a place for them. And, yeah, yeah. And so that person is mm. perhaps more likely to be described as eccentric. Or a collector. Yes. Oh, yeah. uh, whereas a poorer person who decides to collect thousands of plastic plant pots... And has nowhere to put them. Yeah, we would say that that was dirty. Yeah, okay. And more so if you don't have your own home and you're a renter. I've never really thought about no, this. I know. It's really, really interesting. And, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's, there's lots of things to think about. Yeah. She wrote this novel when she was a writer in residence at the Charles Perkins Centre at the University of Sydney. And she did a lot of research as to whether or not hoarding is related to dementia or trauma and And, of course, the answers are not always clear-cut. You really feel the acute pain of Nick's attachment to her love objects and sort of her internal dialogue about their preciousness and the the dignity that she's affording to each of those items. So they're not a burden to her. Oh, no, because... No, see, I always think that they are a burden to people, but they feel like they can't get rid of them for other reasons. Well, I mean... And maybe that is the case for some people. Yes, exactly. In the case of Nick, she has attributed meaning and she has an associated memory with each of those objects. So that's her life. Yeah. You know, the memory that is attached to those objects is her life. They're they're her precious memories. So she will remember, you know, who she kissed when she wore the red scarf. She will remember where she was when she found something and what that meant to her. So when she's in hospital and the people around her start to talk about her home, her absence from these objects becomes excruciating because, of course, she has no control. Yeah. It's it's fabulous. I mentioned before that Nick is the beloved aunt also to a nephew, which is Lena's brother, Will, and he's the third significant character in the book, and he has returned to Sydney after a traumatic period of absence. So this is very much a story about family, these three so principal three characters. three people yeah. going through difficult times. Yeah, and, and they sort of unspoken and complicated layers, you know, relating to that family. And one of the threads that binds the three characters, Lena, Nick and Will, is the shame that each of them are silently oh. dealing with. And I'm not going to spoil that in the context of Will and Lena, but obviously part of the reason that nobody steps inside Nick's home is she has that sort of sh- shame about hoarding. Yeah. Or maybe it's a fear of having to share those objects with people. Right. Um, or the, just the judgment of yes. when um, you even sit in a house like that. Or... Yes. And ultimately I think it comes down to this fierce sensibility that she has that nobody could possibly understand how significant those objects are to her. It's interesting because when I when you mentioned that it was about hoarding, I thought that the title Love Objects was a play on that saying which is love people use objects Mm. and so I thought uh, love objects was playing around with that Mm. and using love in an active sense yes it is yeah I mean you know but also loves objects yeah yeah, but it's but they are more they're more than her love objects yes interesting 
It's a wonderful book. It feels very contemporary. It deals with lots of very current issues as well. I mean, there's, it's a big book. There's a, there's, a, there's a lot in this story. You know, there's considerations of social media and, and gender issues. It also feels very Australian because I forgot to mention the novel takes place in Sydney when it is enveloped by the ash from the bushfires. And so nobody can go outside. So people are stuck inside, which has its own issues as well. And it's sometimes, we've talked about this before, it's sometimes hard to put a finger on what makes a book feel so Australian. Mm. And, and, you know, we've talked about a strong sense of place. and But in this case, I think it's partly the vernacular and the language. Right. I particularly enjoyed another book of hers several years ago, An Isolated Incident. I think it was 2016 or 2017. That's a psychological thriller. She's very good at writing these psychological uh, conundrums. And she was shortlisted for the Miles Franklin and the Stella Prize with an isolated incident. So she is a great writer, and I, th- I highly recommend this. That's Love Objects by Emily Maguire, published in Australia by Alan Unwin. That sounds so good, Lou. I have to read it now. Mm, you do. You can take it. Yeah. Um, what is the first book that you want to share? So my first one is a book called Heart Sick by Jessie Stevens. Jessie Stevens is a young writer in New South Wales. I think she's just 30, maybe 31 by now. And she and her twin sister work at Mamma Mia. And Jessie is one third of the Mamma Mia Out Loud podcast, which is lots of fun. Mm. It is really five days a week, actually, three days a week for everybody. And then if you're a subscriber, they they do extra episodes. Jessie has a master's degree in history and gender studies. And she always has a very funny and surprising way of Mm. looking at things. Mm. You never quite know what she's going to say. Uh, And they do love discussing issues of the day on that podcast. I always love her take. Yeah. Partly because... She is of her generation. Yes. yes. And I, I always find her fascinating. Yeah, her she's opinions. really, and mm. she's very thoughtful and reflective. Mm. And at the start of Australia's lockdown in early 2020, Jessie decided to write a book and she just quietly got on with it and did it. Mm. And uh, <laughs> it wasn't publicly known that she was doing that. She never mentioned it on the podcast. And then voila, she just produced <laughs> this fabulous book. She wanted to write a book about heartbreak, which is something that many of us experience, often mm. in our teens or 20s, but can even be much older than that. And the fascinating thing about what she's done with this book is that she has created a book that reads like a novel, but it's based on three different real people who Jesse did not know, but they told Jesse every granular detail mm. of their relationship and the breakup of it. Yeah, what an insight. Yeah. So what she did was she put a call out for people who might be willing to talk to her. I think she did it through the Mamma Mia Facebook group at the start of lockdown. And she asked people, you know, have you experienced a, a terrible breakup? Would you be willing to talk to me? And she found these three people. She wanted three particular types because she wanted to cover diversity. Yes. So she wanted a same-sex relationship and an older and a, and a younger. So she's got quite, there's quite a bit of diversity there. And she basically interviewed each of these people and back and forth with them over email and other messaging means, mm. of which we 
We know there are many ways to communicate these days. And she wrote their stories as though they are fiction. So it's sort of narrative non-fiction, yes. I think. And the three people have had their identities completely protected. She's changed their names and she's changed any obvious identifiers. But I just love the originality around this and the way she's looked for a new way to mm. tell a story. So it's not completely fictionalised. She has nope. definitely mined their experience. She has experience. mined their experience. Yeah, okay. And she did it because she uh, had a lot of experiences on dating apps mm. that were painful when she was younger. She's now in a, a happy long-term mm. relationship. But having experienced heartbreak and not really being able to find books and things that would be comforting and give her solace or make her feel less alone, I think she decided to write it herself. Yes, so other people are going through the same. Mm. Yeah, fabulous. Yes. So the three characters that she's written about, there's the first one is Anna, and Anna is a lady in her early 40s. She's been married to her husband for 25 years. They have three children. And her heartbreak story is one of an affair with an old friend. Then there's Patrick, and he is in Perth. He's in his early 20s. He's never had a girlfriend. And he meets Caitlin at university in a group tutorial assignment. Yes. And Caitlin has a boyfriend when they first meet. And then the third person is Claire, who is in her mid-30s. She's from Queensland, but she's moved to London. And she starts a relationship with Maggie in London, and then that relationship mm. unfolds from there in London. And none of these things that I'm saying are spoilers. Jessie tells you all of this at the beginning of the book, mm. and the book is called Heartsick, <laughs> so the reader knows exactly how this is all going to yes. end. But what Jessie brings to each story is all the the small details, the uncertainties mm. at the start, the excitement of falling in love, the nervousness, the slight giddiness, and then there's the arc of the relationship and the feelings as they change and then as the relationship ends, all the feelings that are brought up when that happens. And are they first-person narratives for each character or not? Like are they, are they no, talking about third their... third person. It's third person, third yes. Person. Okay. But you are so centred in the story yes, that okay. the, there is a, an enormous immediate immediacy to yes, the story. Okay. That's just how good her writing is. Mm. She's not a flowery writer, but she somehow, even though you know what's coming, she manages to keep you completely gripped for the mm. entire book. I think part of it is that you can see the depth of feeling in each relationship and so you, you do become very invested and her writing is just brilliant. So she's wrapped the book up at the beginning. She does an introduction which, by her and, and she tells you, a little bit yes, about how she got the characters yeah. and how she went about this. And then at the end of the three stories, there's a chapter at the end that she's written, which is a deeply personal essay on romantic rejection. Oh, okay. And that's very personal and really beautifully done. So I think I would say about this book that even if it's a long time since you felt heartbreak, I think you would enjoy this yes. book because the stories are so compelling. And the fact that they're based so closely on real experiences gives mm. them that extra vividity. You're sort of sitting reading it thinking, this is just amazing mm. <laughs> the whole time. Uh, it's wonderful. So the book is published in Australia by Macmillan. I know that it is going to be 
published in the UK. There was a bit of a bidding war for it and Jessie did very well out of it, which I think all of her fans were very delighted to yes. hear for her. Well, I'm going to be taking that off your stack. Yeah. So that was Heartsick by Jessie Stevens. And I should also flag that we do post photographs to our Instagram account of all the books that we talk about on the podcast so that pictures of all of these books will be there by the time this goes to air. And we also include a list of all the books in our show notes, which you can tap on in yes. whichever podcast app you use, whether it's Apple or well, Spotify. Well, we might give them to Fanzer as well. Yeah. So Fanzer yeah, we could publish those um, as well, our show notes. Yeah. So Good there's idea. always resources Yes, available. so it's easy to, to track down what the books are that we've mm. been talking about. So uh, do you want to kick off with the next one, Lou, because it's a sort of a pairing that it we've is. got. It is. It's a pairing of, of two books and we've each, well, we've each read both of them, but we're going to each talk about one of them. Yeah. And so I'm going to talk about the first one in the series. Can we call it a series? Yes, because okay. I think there's a third Ah, okay, fantastic. Yeah. So the first book that I'm going to talk about, the first of the current pair is The Nancys by Kiwi Australian writer R.W.R. MacDonald. So we have 11-year-old Tippi Chan, and she lives in a small, fictional New Zealand town, Riverstone, with her mother, Helen. Um, her father has recently died, and her mother, who no doubt has had rather a lot on her plate, um, has won a cruise, and she is going away for a break. And while she's away, Helen's brother, Pike, who is Tippi's Uncle Pike. He's returning to New Zealand from Australia. Um, he lives in Sydney and he's going to look after Tippi and he's bringing with him his new boyfriend, Devon. So Tippi, Pike and Devon form an immediate and loving bond and they join forces to try to solve a gruesome murder in the town and it's the murder of Tippi's schoolteacher. And I hope that's not giving anything away because that's yeah. on the publicity and the, yeah. and the back cover. Can I just say from the outset, if you think that this is a story with an 11-year-old girl at the centre that might be suitable for young readers, please think again. It's not. <laughs> no. These books are for adult readers. Maybe young adults could read them. Oh, definitely. Yeah. But but yeah. definitely not. A, a not 11-year-olds. Or 8-year-olds or, or yeah, anyone yeah. else. Absolutely not. So the band of three, Tippy, her gay uncle and his boyfriend, call themselves the Nancys. And that's a homage to Tippy and Uncle Pike's love of the Nancy Drew mystery books. And for lovers of those books, which, Virginia, I know you are, yes, there are Nancy Drew references littered throughout all of the chapters, um, which you would have loved. I just absolutely loved it and went and got the relevant book out <laughs> and just, I didn't read it, but I just sort of flicked over it. Had and, it close by. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> patted it, looked at the pictures. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Um, there's lots of other, I suppose you'd call them pop culture references in the book that make it very contemporary. But the momentum of the book is their efforts as amateur sleuths, like Nancy, to gather information and evidence. What I loved was how the, this small New Zealand town was just filled with a cast of richly drawn, you know, and sometimes quite bizarre and kooky. odd characters. It was very <laughs> kooky. That's a great word for it. There's a completely odious real estate agent. Oh, Isn't there always? <laughs> yeah, I loved, I loved him. I know. There's a snide journalist, Lorraine. She works at the Riverstone Bulletin, the bully. 
There's a roving TV reporter, Michael Hornblower. I love the names as well. He's, I, he's Michael Hornblower is just fabulous. He is a great character. You can just sort of imagine him with a face full of makeup. Yes, and, exactly. And very fake. Yeah, very <laughs> fake. And he used to live in Riverstone, but he now comes to town from Auckland whenever there's a story to chase. There's Barry the policeman, who's an absolute darling. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to give out any information yeah. about him. But the chapter where they invite him over for a barbecue and they fill him with yummy food to try and extricate information is just, <laughs> it's just fabulous, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. Fabulous. They're, sort of, they're all working here. Yeah. Brilliant. There's neighbours, of course, because in a small town, everyone thinks they know each other's business and neighbours always loom large. And Tippy lives next door to the Browns, Mr and Mrs Brown, and their granddaughter, Melanie, or step-granddaughter, as she's fond of telling them. She's one of my favourite characters, yeah. Melanie Brown. Um, she's written with a lot of heart and humour. And I think the way she develops throughout this first book and the book that you're going to talk about and her relationship with Tippy and the Nancys is very believable. Yes. Yeah, it's really sweet. But it's Tippy's best friends at school, two boys, Sam and Todd. They trigger the investigation in the first place. So Tippy's mum leaves for her cruise and the next day Tippy hears from her friend Sam that Todd has fallen from a bridge and he's in hospital in a coma. And, of course, all of the adults are a little bit concerned that this may be a trigger for Tippy because she's recently lost her father. But she's very keen to know what was Todd doing on that bridge in the first place and why did he fall? And then it's shortly after that that a murder is reported in Riverstone. An unidentified body is found on the outskirts of the town. It's a nude, headless body (laughs) (laughs) that turns out to be Tippy and Sam's schoolteacher, Miss Everson. And so the sleuthing commences. I think R.W.R. MacDonald captures that small town feel brilliantly. And, And also that something momentous is happening in a small town feel. I don't quite know how to... The, the buzz. The buzz. <laughs> Everybody's yeah, sort of on alert. Yeah. And there's this sort of unworldliness or oddness of some of the people who are disconnected from the big smoke, <laughs> which, of course, it is a stereotype, yeah. but it does work well in this book. Yeah. The best way to describe the book for me, I think, it is just a complete riot. It, it's chaotic, yeah. isn't it? Completely chaotic. You have a sense of these three, the Nancys, running around the town gathering information. There's lots of gregarious gay culture in the book, which isn't just confined to Uncle Pike and his boyfriend, Devon. The author is having a lot of fun at the expense of the gay characters, which, of course, he can do because he is himself gay. There's lots of swearing and lots of liberties taken with language, which... I kind of enjoyed it occasionally. I'd yes. Like, as, a, as a mother, you sort of read it and think, oh, I don't think I'd want them talking like that in front of my 11-year-old. Correct, <laughs> correct. And there's a bit of a drum roll with some of the yeah. a double entendres. Yes, you sort of yeah. think, oh, here we go. Yeah. Tippy narrates the book and, and it's completely dialogue-driven. I mean, her mind is racing a lot of the time, so she's ha- she has this sort of internal dialogue with herself. She shares every word of every conversation she has or of conversations she's listening into, and she shares all of her sort of micro-observations of every look, every glance, you know, and all the body language of the people around her. And I understand why an author might do that, because it builds this sort of sense of an acute observational style, which is obviously very important for a sleuth. Yes. But I'm not sure that the author needed to record 
the yeah. level of detail. Yeah, I would have trimmed bits of that. I would have been editing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think he could have trusted us to get the jokes yeah. and to understand the nuances of the relationships and of the conversations. And I think he could have trusted us to anticipate the plot just a little yeah. bit more. Yeah, I agree. It's not a big criticism. Yeah. It, it, you know, at the end of the day, it's a really charming, fun story and it's it's very warm yeah. and, and has a big heart, as you would say. Yes. It's sort of a frolic, isn't it? It is. But it's it a, is. with a serious uh, yes. underlying base yes. to it. Yes, with an edge. There's yeah. a little edge. Isn't yeah. There? yeah, yeah. And I mean, when you when you're talking about a headless murder victim, you know, it's it is quite, quite yes. gritty in yes. part. So yes, yeah. I read the second one, which I think it came out about a year later, and it's called Nancy Business by R. W. R. Macdonald. This was fun. As a diehard Nancy Drew fan, I really appreciate all the links back to Nancy mm. Drew books that I enjoyed in childhood. Nancy Drew got herself into some very dire and scary situations, but you always knew that things would turn out mm. okay in the end. And I think that Mr McDonald has carried that yes, philosophy I, I through yeah. into these books. You and I did talk a bit about Nancy Drew books in episode three, where we were reflecting on books that we loved as children. Mm. But I'll just say this, that the the putative author of the Nancy Drew books was Carolyn Keane. That's right. But, in fact, there was no such person, and they were written by successive teams of ghostwriters. Uh, I think they were actually done to be the sort of female equivalent or to appeal to the female audience as a pair to the Hardy Boys yes, mysteries. Yes. I'd forgotten that. You'd mentioned that yeah. before that it was a... And that's one of the reasons why the style and the facts changed a little bit over the years. But they were really great stories. So Nancy Business is the sequel to The Nancys, and I've, I'm pretty sure there's going to be a third, but I'll come back to that in a moment. It takes place about nine months later, and it has pretty much all the same characters. Tippy Chan is now 12. She's still the central character. And her gay Uncle Pike and his partner Devon have come back to New Zealand. I love it that they're sort of celebrity hairdressers and they're yes. very wealthy and they've got plenty of money to splash around, which Tippy and her mum do not have. Mm. So they bring a sort of a delightful joy Again, into the cachet. story. Yeah. The town is called Riverstone, which is a nod to Nancy Drew's hometown of River Heights. Mm. And it's the first anniversary of Tippy's father's death. So it's a quite a serious sort of opening mm. to the story. And uh, there is a deadly explosion at the local town hall. And Tippy, Pike and Devon decide to become sleuths again and to investigate what caused the explosion and why it happened. There were a couple of deaths and these were people that were well known in the town and everyone is mystified and finds it very hard to understand why a bomb would have been set off in this little, tiny little town. A gruesome murder and now a, a yeah. bomb. <laughs> it's like midsummer murders. Yeah, I, was, I just thought exactly the same thing. <laughs> Amazing. How, un, how unlucky can one small town be? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so Uncles Pike and Devon are their usual flamboyant mm. selves. They bring lots of warmth and colour to the story. Tippy is really the straight guy in this trio. She is, isn't she? And I mean that as the person who brings all the common sense yes. to the proceedings. Yes. yes, but again, there's a, there's a double meaning. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, to there yeah. is. Having read The Nazis, I sort of knew what to expect with this one, which was a pretty serious crime, a very serious oh. crime, and some rather scary 
menacing mm. moments where you do fear for Chippy's safety and well-being, but it's offset by lots of light-hearted mm. fun. In this one, the uncles have rather bizarrely purchased the house that was the scene of the murder in the first book. Uh, and it's never really explained no, why. No, it doesn't. There was a rather gruesome event that happened in this house and Devon is still recovering from yes. the trauma of that. Yeah. And for whatever weird reason, they've decided to purchase that very house and they're having it renovated so that when they come down from Sydney to stay in New Zealand, they will have a yes. base near Tippy and Tippy's mum. And in the meantime, while the house is being renovated, they're staying in this rather grotty Airbnb for the um, duration of their holiday. And they go up and use, I'll call it the murder house, the mm. house that's being renovated, as an incident centre. Mm. Uh, and they do it just like you see on detective shows where they've got a whole wall yes. filled with, you know, diagrams and names and arrows and question marks and literally like out of Midsummer yeah. Murders. Nancy business. <laughs> yeah. And that's where they do all their detective work in that spare bedroom. There's a lot of looking at CCTV <laughs> footage before the explosion and the man who is thought to have set off the bomb in his van may not be the person who's actually responsible. I don't know. I'm not going to say any more about mm. the plot or how they solve the mystery. There is a strong suggestion that there'll be a third book because at the very end there's, there's a discussion about what will be the Nancy's next case. Yes. And, uh, and there are a couple of unresolved there's a, threads. There's one very significant, very significant thing in, yes. in Tippy's life that yes. is still unresolved by yes. the end of this book. So, so I'm sure he's gearing up. I'm going to have to read yeah. Uh, yeah. the third book just simply because I really want to know what happened. So I like this for its originality. It's really not like anything else I've ever no. read. It's sort of light and fun with a sharp side to it. I'll definitely read the third one because I'm invested mm. and I thought it was a great rollick. That yeah. was Nancy Business by R.W.R. MacDonald. And can I just say, how magnificent are the covers? Yeah, they're great, aren't they're they? They're so beautiful. With the eyes. And, of course, we can't guarantee that when the books are published elsewhere, they'll have the same covers. True. Because that seems to change, but they, they're yeah. just exquisite. Yeah, they're just really exquisite. Great. So what was your third book, Lou? Oh, talk about a change in tone and pace. <laughs> wow. This book is 100 Days by Alice Pung published this year by Black Ink. Um, this is her first book of adult fiction. You gave this book to me, Virginia, and I'm very grateful because I'm just a little bit obsessed with it. Oh, good. This is Karuna's story. Karuna's mother is Chinese. She's come from the Philippines and her father is Australian. So Karuna's mother came to Australia as a bride. Her father was older and he's left them now uh, and withdrawn his support. Oh. Um, he does appear in the book at times and as part of Karuna's narrative, but this book is very much the story of her relationship with her mother. So Karuna narrates the book. She's a 16-year-old girl, and this is not a spoiler because it's, you know, on the back cover and in all the publicity. She's fallen pregnant at this young age, and she is narrating this story in a sort of, I suppose, epistolary fashion. It's a letter to her daughter. Oh. She's always battled with her mother for control over her life, battled for her own opinions as she's grown older and for sort of agency over her actions. 
Her mother has very um, fixed and determined views about everything. And that, of course, meant that as a younger child, Karuna gravitated towards her father, who appeared to represent more freedom in terms of her thoughts and her actions. And now he's gone. And now he's gone, Mm. yeah. And so she's telling her daughter about her life so far and about her mother, who she refers to as your grandma. Right. And also from time to time she refers to the grandpa. But So the loss of her father in her life and his financial support has meant that Karuna and her mother have left their home and they've been living in a housing commission flat. And Karuna has also had to leave her private Catholic girls' school. And so, you know, these change in circumstances has made her mother even more anxious, Mm. even more controlling, and, and, and arguably quite paranoid about Karuna's safety, who, after all, is all she has in the world. And a world she's living in which is not culturally the one that she herself has grown up with. Mm. I'm not going to talk a great deal more about the story as it unfolds, save to say that as Karuna's due date beckons and after, in fact, the baby has been born, Karuna's mother's desperation for sort of want of a better word, to control her daughter and to dictate the care of the baby and their safety leads her to lock Karuna up in the flat while she's at work. And so the title of the book refers to that period of lockdown, but captivity would be a better word, 100 days. And what Alice Pung does just so exquisitely is to sort of capture that sense of being emotionally and psychologically sort of suffocated and ultimately physically trapped. And I have to say at times I did feel a bit of panic. You know, it did make me feel quite panicked. But there's also this real warmth in the book and humour and hope. It's not a big book. Um, It's only about 240 pages and I absolutely devoured it, just read it. I've got one more thing to say. I think it's very easy for me as a non-Asian woman to be judgmental of Karuna's mother and to fall into sort of stereotypical labelling of Asian mothers. Right. I mean, she most certainly should not have locked her daughter up in a flat. But there is a cultural complexity to the story that's got many layers. Right. And so for those of you at Fanza who are keen to remain connected to the Australian literary scene, I can recommend that you subscribe to the Australian Book Review. There's an online subscription as well as a physical subscription. It's excellent. It's filled with great essays and reviews. And in the June 2021 edition, which you can still get access to online, the Asian writer Yen Rong Wong, who I think is based in Brisbane, she has written a, a short review of this book, but through the lens of someone who was herself raised in a strict Chinese family. Right. And of course, you know, this is a universal, universal issue, Jenny. We've talked about this in relation yeah. to many immigrant cultures. Yeah. Um, the clash between the sort of cultural heart of the older members yeah. with the children who are trying to make their way in a in more a Western, new, a more new, modern world. More yeah. modern world. So it's it's a wonderful book and I can really recommend it. 100 Days by Alice Pung, published in Australia by Black Ink. And the analogy with coronavirus lockdowns <laughs> is is sort of will resonate with anybody who has yes. struggled with yes. lockdown that we've all experienced. Yes. I'm just curious to know whether this was all written 
Yes, well, long I, before the pandemic. Yeah, when she wrote it, I, I can't tell yeah. you that. I guess that's also why I didn't. I I hesitated to use the word lockdown. I, I yes, she is locked in the flat, yeah, yeah. but it that didn't loom large for me no. for me when I was reading okay. it. I suppose because it was so involuntary. Yeah. Okay. Do you know what I mean? She, and you were just she had no in agency. The story by the she didn't have agency over that lockdown. Yeah. It wasn't yeah. a lockdown that, that where she that, could go and do her hours exercise yes. for the day. Yeah. yeah. I had an impression that it would be really good, so I'm glad you enjoyed yes, it. Yes, thank you. And what's your th- Well, next it's book? amazing, actually. We did not do this deliberately, but my next book is also written by and about a 16-year-old girl oh. of an Asian background. Oh. So this is called The Coconut Children. It's by Vivian Pham. And the backstory to this novel is worth recounting here because it's just such an amazing story. At the age of 16, Vivian Pham, the author of this book, joined a young people's writing workshop and it was a novella program at the Story Factory in Sydney, which is a not-for-profit organisation. It was set up in 2012 as a creative writing program for marginalised young people. And Vivian attended this program and she ended up writing this 90,000-word book. Mm. And as she was working on it, there was a senior editor at Penguin Random House who was a volunteer on the program and he was assigned to work with her. And the rest is history, mm. as they say. So that's how she was sort of discovered. How wonderful. Yeah, it's wonderful. It, yeah. So she was meant to be writing a novella and she's mm. written this fabulous book, which is completely gripping. And as I was reading this, I was just both completely inside the head of this 16-year-old girl who's the main character, but occasionally just stopping in disbelief that this was written by a 16-year-old. It's incredibly self-possessed, confident, um, mature, reflective, you know, all the adjectives you can think of. It's incredibly good. That's actually quite extraordinary. I think she's quite gifted. So this is a novel, but it's deeply personal and it has a great deal of Vivian's own story in it and, in fact, Vivian's father's story as a Vietnamese boat immigrant. Mm. The main character is a girl named Sunny. She's in Year 11 at the girls' high school in Cabramatta in New South Wales. And Sunny, just to give you a taste of what Sunny's like, she reminded me a lot of Duchess in the Chris Whitaker book. We begin at the end. We begin at the end. So she has a very similar spirit, that sort of same very fierce spirit, but also a very deep love for her little brother, Mm. that deep love that makes her very protective Mm. of her little brother. And Sunny is very similar in that respect. In this book, the little brother's vulnerabilities are different. Little Oscar, well, he's not that little, but he's he has brittle bones. Oh yes, and he's at risk if he's physically bullied, he he will break a bone. So she has that sort of extra layer of care for him. But in the same way that Duchess in uh, We Begin at the End used to walk her brother to sc- the school yes. gate and yes. stare down anyone who yes. might look as if they could possibly be thinking about being mean <laughs> to the little brother, yes. Sonny does that yes. in this book. Wonderful. And the little brother is starting his first year of high school at Cabramatta Boys High School, which is the mm. school next door. And Sonny walks him off on his first day and that's sort of the opening of the book. And I should say that all of the principal characters in this book are Vietnamese immigrants to Australia. So it has a very immersive feeling of being from Vietnam but assimilating in New South Wales. 
and Vivian has peppered lots of little references to Vietnamese things or food or customs or beliefs throughout mm. the story. And that's what contributes, I think, to making it so immersive. And she uses just enough Vietnamese words to add to the Vietnamese sensibility in the story, yeah. but without it mattering that you don't know what those little words yes. mean. And you could sort of guess what the odd word means, but it's really well done. Mm. It's, sometimes writers will put another language in and you think, well, I have no idea what that yes. is. Yes, and there's no context. And you that just you feel like you've missed something. Yeah. That did not happen at all with this. It was just the odd little word, pepper through. It was really well done. So the story opens when the boy next door, literally the boy next yes. door, Vince, is released from two years of juvenile detention and he attends Cabramatta Boys High School and his group of friends welcome oh. him back as though mm. he's never been away. Mm. But, of course, two years is a long time to be away in juvenile detention. Got a rising sense yeah. of dread. Yes, yes, and you should. <laughs> and these schools are seriously rough places. Yeah. Uh, they're pretty scary. Mm. And I don't know what the proportion is, but many of the students come from Vietnamese backgrounds mm. and they are dealing with that issue of parents who've come from Vietnam and bring all those different cultural expectations yes. combined with the difficulties of assimilating into a new country with not a lot of money. Mm. So it's a difficult mix. And Vince comes back to school and he immediately starts a small fire and establishes himself as the alpha male of the school and gets oh. himself suspended for a week. So you can sort of see the path and the trajectory that Vince thinks he's on. What Vince does not do is go back home to live with his parents who live next door to Sonny's family. Yes. What Vince does is he comes out of juvenile detention and he moves in with one of his mates, one of the guys in his gang. And the guys in his gang have not told him that while he has been away for two years in juvenile detention, there has been a very significant change to his family at home. And I'm not going to say what oh, that is. I want to know. <laughs> yeah. And there's a very good reason why Vince won't go home. And that is because he has a very abusive father. I can say that. It's not a spoiler. No. And a mother who is very frightened. So you and get they're it, living next door to they're this They're living family. next door to Sonny. And Sonny's home is not that great either, Sonny's mm. home life. So... One of the obstacles in Sonny's life and Oscar's, little Oscar's life, her younger brother, is that they have a mother who is a complete harridan. There's really no other way to describe mm. her. Uh, she's obviously got severe mental health issues. I think she's a very stressed woman, struggling with her environment, struggling with yes. many, many things. Which is very similar to the mother in 100 yeah, Days. Yeah, and, and it just all gets dumped yeah. on the children. And there's a, a lovely dad in this, a really sweet dad who just tolerates everything, which is a lovely sort of soft place for these kids. But when they get home from school, she just starts yelling at them. Nothing they do is ever good enough and they're always walking on eggshells around her all the time. And then there's a grandmother who lives with them, a Vietnamese grandmother, and she actually sleeps in the same bedroom as the two kids. And she is an alcoholic. Mm. So she's got lots of issues as well. So there are lots of demons in this mm. family and a very tricky family 
dynamic. So the span of the story covers the next few months in the life of Vince and Sonny and what Vince, you know, discovers about his family, what path Vince chooses to take now that he's out of juvenile detention and his interaction with Sonny once their lives sort of intersect. There's a lot in it. It's fabulous. There's a Shakespearean play. There's a discovery of a stash of porn up in some forest that all the kids at the school know about and talk about. You know, there's kids doing drug deals on railway stations Mm. and school events and all all sorts. It's it's full of lots of activity and lots of things going on. She wrote this as a 16-year-old. She wrote it as a 16-year-old. She also, interestingly, chose to set this in 1998. Okay. So it's pre-mobile phones. I think that might be why I was sort of reflecting on why she did that. And I was nervous that I thought a 16-year-old is just not going to be able to capture 1998 Mm. for someone like me who lived it. But never once did I think, oh, that wasn't invented then or people didn't talk like that then. No. Which I always do. Yes. (laughs) That that phrase was not around in 1980. None of that. It was really well done. I think it's a great story. It's got lots of forward momentum and... A fantastic ending. I wondered if it was she picked that time because of the Cabramatta riots, but they were later. Yep, they don't come into it at no. all. Yep, so that was The Coconut Children by Vivian Pham, and I strongly recommend it. Oh, fantastic. It Fabulous. Mm. Well, that's a great stack of books that yeah. we've discussed yeah. today. We hope you've all enjoyed it. Um, we really are thrilled to be part of your Fanza Fringe Festival. We're actually going to record a second episode for you shortly with another grab bag of great books from our side of the world. So please stay tuned to Fans' website and Instagram for news of the next episode. But as Virginia said earlier, if you, in the meantime, if you'd like to listen to some of our regular episodes, then you can find us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Okay. Bye for now. Bye. We really enjoyed today's episode. Thank you for listening and thank you for all your lovely reviews too. If you want to know more about today's books or anything else we've talked about, you'll find them in the show notes. And we feature most of the books on our Instagram page too at diving underscore in underscore podcast. And if you'd like to share any books that you've been diving into, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at hello at divinginpodcast.com. Bye for now. Breaking up. Shaping up, working in, diving in, breaking up, shaping up, working in, diving in. Hi, Virginia. Hi, Lou. <laughs> <laughs> it sounded like I was drunk. <laughs> Hi, Virginia. <laughs> it's going to be one of those episodes.